We're working our way through this book. Uh, you'll find what we're looking at today on, if you've got a pew Bible, you'll find it on pages uh, 514 through to 517. I'll read this as we go along because we are going to uh, look at these three chapters, obviously not in a massive amount of detail, otherwise you'd be here a very long time. Uh, for those of you who don't know, you are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. The book of Job is essentially a poem. It's one of the greatest poems ever written. It begins with a bit of prose at the beginning telling us who Job is and what happens to him, and it will end with some prose at the end but all in between the verses we're looking at are poetry. And it is the story of a man who suffers enormously. He loses his family. He loses his health. He loses all his property. Uh, when we come to him in, in this part, he is outside his native city, um, sitting with, uh, as he describes it himself, breaking his sores with a broken piece of pottery and he is in a desperate condition, and he has some friends with him, and one of these friends we're going to read just now called Bildad the Shuite, who um, I always remember his name for a really daft reason, just one of those really stupid jokes. Who's the smallest man in the Bible? Bildad the Shuite. But that's, that's how, it's strange what makes you remember things. I, I don't remember the other friends, but I remember Bildad the Shuite. That's maybe a child's mind that's just stuck uh, with me, but whatever helps you remember anyway, this man called Bildad the Shuite, who uh, comes and he's responding to a speech that Job has made that we looked at before. Can I say, as we look at this, I find that this is more and more, uh, or less and less rather, about Job, and it's revealing more and more about God. It's a bit like swimming in your own paddling pool and then discovering that you're in the midst of the ocean. The pool still exists, but it's part of a much bigger whole, and, and that is what uh, Job is, is learning. Now, you may, of course, you'll come to this and say, what does this have to do with me? This, this is so irrelevant to me, and the answer is, to that is simply, have you ever suffered? Do you ever suffer? Do you ever fear? Are you ever afraid? Are you ever angry? Do you ever question what's going on? If you're human and got a brain and a soul and a heart, then you do. And so this has a great deal to do with you. There are uh, four ifs that we're going to look, the kind of questions that so many of us ask. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 8, Bildad the Shuite's speech to Job. How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against Him, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now He will rouse Himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generations. Find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. 
Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. He's like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it's torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame, and the tents of the wicked will be no more. Now, you read that, or you hear it read, and if you're a Christian, you say, wait a minute, what's wrong with that? Looks good. Sounds good. God will bless you. You disobey God, God will punish you. You're like a, a spider's web. You're fragile. You need God. God doesn't reject a blameless person. What he's really saying is something that we can teach our children, and we can adopt it as a psychology as adults, which is this, if you are good, if you are good, then God will bless you. Now, there's all kinds of problems arise with that, as you know, because, for example, you may be undergoing a particular suffering, and you may think, what did I do? Why do I deserve this? On the other hand, you may be experiencing prosperity. You may be rich and well-off and happy and, and well-married and lots of other things, and you basically say, well, I, I deserve it, don't I? Come on, I, I should get some more. Well, this if you are good from Bildad, it's wrong in so many ways. First of all, he is incredibly insensitive and incredibly hard. You do never, you never counsel people in this way. Verse 1, he's saying, your words are blasphemous. They're a blustering wind. Bildad seems threatened by Job's words. They threaten his cherished beliefs because Bildad believed if you were good, you would prosper. If you were bad, you would suffer. Job was suffering. He appeared to be good. Job is refusing to acknowledge that he is bad, and therefore, Bildad wants him to admit and to confess his own sin. Verse 4, he's callous. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Now, Job's children were having a party when they were all killed. And what this man is saying, if only they'd been behaving themselves. Now, we don't know that they weren't. There's nothing wrong with having a party, but this is what he's saying. How, what a cruel thing to somebody to say to somebody who's lost all their children. Job was really concerned about what his children did. He sacrificed for his children. He prayed for his children. He loved his children. And then he's told by his friend, when your children sinned, they were punished. They were killed. Verse 8, he's a traditionalist, a moralist. Ask the former generation. Find out what their fathers learned. His source of information is not experience, but scholarship. It's not personal, but scholarly learning. Bildad's position is that what is true is not new, and what is new is not true. 
And he argues it really, really strongly. And there are lots of people who do that too. They will say, I remember the good old days. Remember what it was like in the 1950s. I don't. Some of you will. Remember what it was like in the 1960s. Remember what it was like in the 1970s. There are even some of you for whom the 1990s will be the good old days. It's amazing. And, you know, in 20 years' time, you're going to be looking back and going, ah, remember the good old days in the, what what would we call this? The 20 teens. Remember those good old days. People have always done that. And that's what Bildad is doing here. He's also very um, gifted because verses 11 to 19, he uses incredible poetry and imagery to uh, talk about Job's life, the papyrus plant which dries up for lack of water, the fragility of the spider's web. Without God, he says, you're like them. That's true. But his big mistake is this. His big mistake is to assume that if you suffer, it means that you are without God. In Job's case, it's the opposite. You see, the truth is without God, we are like a spider's web. But it's how you apply that truth. Derek Thomas says this, a rigid application of a truth which prevents the possibility of exceptions or a broader analysis of the situation is a dangerous and cruel line to take. Now, we need to think about that because we believe the Bible is truth. We hold to it as the truth. We're not wishy-washy or wet on that at all. But how you apply that truth in particular circumstances, please be really, really careful because you can speak the truth but apply it in such a way that it's false, that it's hard-hearted, that it's cruel. Bildad cannot see that. He is a neat but a superficial thinker. He's a moralist who forgets that the world cannot be divided into good and bad. He forgets we are all sinners. He is inhumane, and he pigeonholes God. He does not know, and he does not understand Job. His advice is what Job already knows. And that's Job's problem because he believes with all his heart and he's so confused. So please be very, very wary of ever being in this position where you say to someone, if you do this or if you are good, you'll be blessed. If you are good, you will get this. There is an element of truth in that, but it is too simplistic, it is too rigid, and it misses out the much, much broader situation. Good people do suffer, and the suffering that you experience sometimes, yes, can be because you do something really stupid, can be because you wander away from God. But many times we suffer not because we wander away from God. So, Job's response, let's go on, I should have put that up here, um, if you will look to God and plead with all, all the, the Almighty, that's what he's saying. If, you, if, if only you would look to God. Please don't say that to people when they're really suffering, unless you put it in a broader context. I mean, I can only talk about this from my own experience, and please forgive me for saying this, but if I'm, you know, when I was lying in hospital, and you come into me and say, David, all you have to do is look to God. Do I not know that? Am I not aware of that? What are you saying? Sometimes people say things just in order not to be silent. Sometimes people say things because they desperately want to fix everything. But you have to be really, really careful about that. Now, it's not that you say nothing, and it's not even that this isn't true, 
But we have to be really careful about making vast judgments which we cannot possibly know. So now we come to Job's response, and it's one really of despair. Um, Chapter 9, where he's basically saying, if God is not good, he replies, indeed I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? The one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast, who has resisted him and come out unscathed. He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it's a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. If I say... I'll forget my complaint. I will change my expression and smile. I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I wash myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Now that's blues. That's despair. Never mind if you are good. What Job is really asking is, is God good? Why do the blameless and the, and, and the good, it doesn't matter, God's just capricious. People just suffer. Job's faith is stronger than Bildad's. It's more imaginative than Bildad's. It's more adventurous, and it's more demanding and more painful. Bildad's faith is very simplistic, very easy to have when you're well off, when things are going well. Job's faith is much more complex. Job is thinking in legal terms, and he's thinking of God being summoned to a court. And Job's saying, well, how can we summon God? How can we be righteous for God? How can I be publicly vindicated before God? God is so great. God is the master of the universe. Verses 5 to 7, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be manipulated. 
<coughs> he is not easily managed. So he's really saying to Bildad, go and be good all you want. How do you think you're going to control God? It's like you make a bargain with God. You say, oh Lord, if only you give me this, I will do that. Or if I do this, then you will give me I'll pray 24-7, and then you'll give me this. I'll do this, this, and this, and then you have to give me this. But Job says God is not like that. He is beyond our manipulation. Verses 10 to 12, he's saying God is incomprehensible. God is free, unlike us. Despite all the evidence of nature, Job says, I can't see God. Now, it's interesting, he says, I can't see God, yet he still uses the language of praise. He's not saying, God is with me all the time and I sense God's presence. He's saying, I don't feel God. And then in verses 14 to 24, he brings God to court and he wants to talk with God. And he says, well, what can I say? God won't listen to me. God is too strong for me. He's not really blaming God at this point, I don't think. I think what he's doing is stating the futility of his own position. He's concerned about what we might call the randomness of life. Pain has distorted his mind, and he's thinking irrationally. That's what happens. You really suffer, and you think irrationally. You are overwhelmed by all that's occurring. He's concerned about injustice in the world as well as in his own life. And he's saying, what does God do about injustice? God seems to be unfair. He says, why don't you judge the wicked? Why don't you acquit the innocent? And he really says, leave me alone or let me die. Life is brief and fragile. He talks about these um, Egyptian papyrus boats, which were the equivalent of the Porsches of their day. He's basically saying, if I had a Porsche and could belt along as fast as I could, what difference would that make? The runner running and the eagle swooping, and he's saying, time just is shooting by me so quickly, and yet everything is so screwed up. So verse 27, he says, I, look, I could try this. I could do what people say. Smile. Things are bad. Smile. Cheer up. They could be worse. Smile, because things could get worse. So I did smile, and things did get worse. And that's a mentality, again, that a lot of people, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Job says it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And he said, even when I tried to cleanse myself, and I tried to do this good, and I tried to be good, what happened? I washed myself with Purcell, and my clothes still hate me because I stink so much. I can't get clean. And it's, a, it's, it's an absolute desperation. So what he's saying to Bildad is, Bildad, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I'm just saying you haven't understood my situation, and you have not gone deep enough. It is an incredible despair, a longing for God on the one hand and a terror of meeting with God on the other. To him, God is incomprehensible, God is invisible, God is unaccountable, and God is unrestrainable. And so he has almost just no hope. And then chapter 10. I'm going to miss out a couple of verses. We'll come back to them. Chapter 10, he says this, and it, it, it gets, basically it gets worse. So just hang on. Stay with me. You'll understand this. Some of you I know understand this from your own experience. Others don't yet. Chapter 10, verse 1, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaints and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see it as a mortal sees? 
Are your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a man that you must search out my faults and probe after my sin, though you know that I'm not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand? Your hand shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness, and in your providence watched over my spirit. But this is what you concealed in your heart, and I know that this was in your mind. If I sinned, you would be watching me and would not let my offense go unpunished. If I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger towards me. Your forces come against me wave after wave. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I'd died before any eye saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so that I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night, of deep shadow and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. He says, I will speak in the bitterness of my soul, and that's what he does. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience. I know, well, I I do know that some have had that, an experience where you lie down and you just wish that you could die. Now, we, when we think about suicide, suicide is the number one cause of death for young men in the city. Suicide. Not drug overdoses, but suicide. Why? What, what drives people to commit suicide? And there are many, many more people who despair and who would want to take their life, but don't. What causes people to feel such pain and such sorrow and such anguish that they say, I loathe my very life. Job recognizes he is fearfully and wonderfully made. He's shaped like clay. He's curdled like cheese. He's knit together. But then he says, wave after wave of your attacks come upon me, and he sees them as coming from God. He feels that he is in the grip of an angry God who is making him suffer. He has a fear that God is against him and that God is a God full of surprises and whose resources are limitless and His resources are going to be deployed against Job. And he says to God, leave me alone. Turn away from me just for one moment. Let me have one moment, one second of joy before I die, before I go to the land of deepest night and darkest shadow. And it's just it's just such an incredible, incredible despair. Even death has lost its attraction. Life is nothing but one hardship after another, and even death is not peace, but rather darkness. Now, you're all waiting for the but. You're saying, okay, that's taken us down fairly low. That's pretty desperate for people. Give us the butt very quickly. Come on, tell us everything's okay and we can be really cheerful and go out here dancing and singing. Because this is not what we came to church to hear. I wish I'd never been born. We're getting there. 
we will get there. And of course, in the Bible, there is a but. But you need to understand this. You need to grasp this. You can't just superficially skip over this. And I'll tell you why. Because either you or people you know will go through this level of despair. And if your answer is only the Monty Python, always look on the bright side of life, you will hammer nails into people's hearts. You will destroy them by refusing to understand or empathize with or sympathize with their pain. It is, it's an incredible feeling to lie and to wish that you were dead because everything has gone against you. The Bible deals with that, and we have to, to deal with it. Now, as I say, of course there is a but, but um, we're going to, before we come to that, we are going to sing, um, we're going to sing from uh, Psalm 139, which is a psalm which reflects this, uh, uh, chapter 10, particularly this idea that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's this contrast that we have. Um, where from your spirit can I go and hide? And from your presence, Lord, where can I fly? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And there, and in the lowest depths, if there I lie. Now, most Christians, we read that and we think it's really good that we can't get away from God. Actually, I think both in the psalm, the psalm is neutral about that, in the psalm, but here, Job's saying, I wish I could get away from God. Um, you made me. Why am I in such a mess? That's really what he's asking. So let's sing the words of this psalm, and then we'll, we'll look at the solution, actually, that Job finds himself in the verses, the few verses that we missed out. So let's stand and sing. The tune is eventide. Where from your spirit can I go and hide? Now let's go back to the few verses we missed in chapter 9, verse 32. He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. So he says, he's told by his friend, if only you were good, and that's not a solution. He's really scared. What if God is not good? And he gets to a desperate situation where he says, if only I hadn't been born. Well, here's the other if. If only there were someone to mediate. The problem is not for Job the problem of suffering. The problem is one of being right with God in the midst of that suffering. He doesn't need a judge. He's not asking for a judge. He needs a mediator. He needs someone to lay his hand upon us both. And that's the image of saying, it seems to him, this is what he was seeing, God is against me. I can't answer God because God is great. I am not. If only there was someone who could put his hand on my shoulder and his hand on God's and bring us together. Now, as I say, Job is not grasping fully at all God's position in this, but he does grasp God's anger against sin and so on. He gets that. And I think if only there was someone is, is the cry for us all. In our culture, we're told you can save yourself. If only you do this, if only you do that. But you can't. It's like 
When I was at my worst in terms of illness and lying in a coma, Annabelle was told, there's nothing we can do now, it's up to David. But I was in a coma, what could I do? There's nothing that you can do for yourself in terms of your deepest needs and your deepest anxieties and your deepest fears. There's nothing that you can do or that you can receive which will save you. You really need someone. If you say, if only I got a little bit more money, if only I got a better job, if only I got a husband, if only I got better, if only, and none of that would deal with your deepest need. Your deepest need is, and is the need of all of us in this world. How do we relate as sinful human beings to a holy God? 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. There is a Redeemer. There is a mediator. There is somebody who comes along and puts his hand on your shoulder, and in, a, in, in this kind of metaphorical sense, he, he reconciles you to God. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. You see that despair that Job had of, I wish I'd never been born. Christ felt that despair. Christ felt the loneliest loneliness, the deepest darkness, the most broken heart. Christ felt that. The biggest despair that you feel, the, the overwhelming blackness that comes in you, and it's almost physical. It is a burden upon your shoulders. It is a, it is a hassle. Christ felt that. And when Jesus says, cast all your burdens upon me, we're told to cast them upon Him because He cares for us. He's not meaning, just come along and give me a couple of your little troubles. He's saying, that darkness which is so profound that you cannot even articulate it, I've been there and I've done it, and I'll carry it. If anyone does sin, 1 John 2, verse 1 to 2, we have... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, one of the most dangerous prayers you could ever, ever pray would be, God, show me my sin. Because the blackness that would occur to you, it would knock you flat. It's why in revivals, sometimes people physically collapse. It's not because they're filled with the Holy Spirit full of joy. It's because they're overwhelmed by their consciousness of sin. It's a very dangerous prayer to pray. When you are aware of your sin, even to any degree, it can be so overwhelming. That's why, along with consciousness of sin, has to come a consciousness of Jesus Christ, because no matter what sin you have committed, Jesus took it. Jesus died for it. Jesus carries it. And God will not judge it twice. There is no double jeopardy. You cannot be condemned for it. And I know there's so much hypocrisy in the church, isn't there? There are people who come, they're all sanctimonious and holy, and Jesus loves me, and Jesus this, and thank you, Lord, and they go home and they switch on the most filthy porn on their internet. Or people who have come to church and they've been abusive to their own families. Or people who come to church and yet their whole motivation is what they can grab. Or people who, who, who talk piously and yet have incredible arrogance and pride. 
And we can all have that, and we can be overwhelmed when we are hit by that. And we feel, I deserve, I deserve the judgment of God. But there is a mediator. That's why the gospel is such good news to absolutely everybody, because there's nobody in this city, there's nobody here, there's nobody in your family, there is no friend that you have that you can go to them and say, actually, I'm really sorry, but Jesus' death wasn't good enough for you. You can't say that to anybody. That's why what I'm talking about here is such good and such wonderful news that even in the pits of despair, as Job was, there is a redeemer, there is a mediator. The New Testament has another angle on this, which I don't have time to go into, but just let me mention John 14, 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Not only does God give us Jesus, but Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is our counselor and our comforter. Jesus Christ is the answer to suffering, though Job as yet cannot see that. He has to look outside himself not at his own experience, but at God. In spite of his depression, though, Job is aware that his final solution lies in getting to God and not in running away from God. Job, I think, teaches us this. You want to live, to live in what we call a relativist culture. We say, you believe what you want to believe. It doesn't matter. Then you're going to end up in trouble. When someone says to me, David, that's what you believe, and that's for you, and that's fine, and that's nice, but it's not for me, the kind of standard answer in our society is to go, yes, that's true. You and I have our different beliefs, and I don't really care. But actually, the biblical answer is to look at them with absolute sorrow and say, you have no idea what you are missing. It's not for me. It's for you as well. It's for everybody. We all need to be right with God. We all need to connect with God. We all need a mediator. Forgive me for saying this. I'm quite smart. I could out-argue most of you. You want to have a square go anytime verbally, uh, and I'll probably win. It doesn't matter. All the clever arguments in the world are not going to get me to God. Bildad was quite smart. I think the others of Job's friends were pretty smart. We'll come on to a guy later on who's really, really mega smart. Doesn't get you to God. People have different gifts and different abilities. None of them will get you to God. What we all need is we need someone who gets us to God, who links us to God. I love that in, in, in chapter 9 where he says he, he walks by, I don't see him. I don't feel Him. I don't trust Him. There's far too many Christians who say, yeah, yeah, I feel God, I feel God, I feel God, but you only ever feel Him when we're praising together. You don't feel Him at other times. How do you connect to? How do you get to God? And it is through Jesus. And I, and I say this, just let me finish by saying this in terms of, of the gospel and of the good news. I don't mean to be derogatory, in, and, and this is not derogatory at all, but the, I was speaking to some people who had learning difficulties, I think the euphemism is. And they were in a meeting because they'd been bribed to come to that meeting by uh, coffee vouchers and so on. I was uh, there, and I could see that, you know, where this was all going. So we changed it a wee bit, and one of the guys asked me a question. And it was basically along the lines of, I'm not clever, so what does, what does all this have to do with me? And, you know, for me, it was incredibly moving 
and so important, to be able to see to him and to see actually the joy on his face when I said to him, look, Jesus doesn't care two hoots how smart you are. He really doesn't. He came for you. You're human. You have a mind. You have a heart. You have a body. You have a soul. You have a spirit. You're human as much as anyone else. And all that Jesus says to you is just exactly what he would say to the smartest person in this city, in this country, is you need to come to me. And I think that's true of everyone here. That's why I, I don't get churches or pe- Christians who say, well, we're going to reach out to these kind of people or we're going to be this kind of church. Don't, don't you grasp it. I, it, it really it was a wonderful thing that um, David Meredith had posted on, uh, in fact, I'll probably read it tonight. He'd posted it on his Facebook. And I, I just thought it was, it was just totally, totally wonderful about the kind of people who come into church with different attitudes, different problems, different philosophies, different ideas. And they're all told, you're welcome. You're welcome. Every single person is welcome. Not because, primarily because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is, and because of who you are in that you need Jesus. Every single one. I need Jesus, and I'm the minister. You need Jesus, whoever you are. And I think when you look at Job 8, 9, and 10, when someone's going through that pain and that sorrow and that hurt and that suffering, the answer is not cheer up. The answer is not be good. The answer is not, well, I'll give you this and I'll give you that. The answer is, there is a Redeemer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the understanding that we have from Your Word that You have granted to us. Help us to apply it in each of our circumstances. I pray for those who are in darkness and confusion and hurt and wounded, that You would cause them to lift their eyes beyond the waves and to see Christ. And for those of us, O Lord, who are, will go through that, help us to do the same. And for all of us, we ask, O Lord, that we would walk beside one another bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill your law, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.